0: When the folks at the Public Broadcasting Service went looking for a charismatic personality to host their latest documentary film series on the natural world, they reached out to a man with just the right skills to bring the outdoors into every home in America.
1: My name is Baratunde Thurston. I am a multimedia storyteller operating at the intersection of race, technology, democracy, and climate, because I love this planet. The Wild. There's nothing quite like the feeling of stepping outside and breaking free from the modern world. I'm in northern Minnesota, on the edge of a lake that resembles an ocean. In places like this, it's easy to see nature as something so powerful, so vast, we could never leave a real mark on it. But our footsteps are almost everywhere these days. And while knowing that can weigh you down, it can also lift us up and inspire us to change.
0: The show airs on PBS television stations nationwide, and like its host, the program explores those points of connection where the outdoors and the human experience come together for fun, adventure, and environmental conservation. Each episode introduces viewers to remarkable people and places from one end of this great nation to the other. In advance of the premiere of this amazing new series, I had the chance to talk to Baratina Thurston and get an insider's look into America Outdoors. I'm James Edward Mills, and you're listening to The Joy Trip Project. I have to tell you that I really have enjoyed your show, America Outdoors. And I think for starters, I'm interested in having you tell me, how did this show come to be? What was the, the creation and origin story of this wonderful PBS documentary? Yeah, yeah.
1: The, the genesis of this show, according to me, is I was born in September 1977 in Washington, D.C. to Arnita Lorraine Thurston and Arnold Robinson. And my mother raised me um, and she raised me to uh, enjoy and explore the outdoors. Uh, the more recent version of this show is my agent sent me a, uh, a request for a host for uh, a show then titled Outdoor America. Uh, so you know, vast evolution since those early days to America outdoors. But uh, they, uh, they were like, hey, do you want to do this? And I hadn't really been in the space of doing anything related to nature of the outdoors in all of my media work. I had done comedy stuff with The Onion and The Daily Show. I've done technology stuff with the MIT Media Lab. I did race stuff with my How to Be Black book. So me as an outdoorsy person, that was news to a lot of people. But it wasn't news to the little kid in me who, who grew up as a Boy Scout, uh, who grew up hiking with my mother on the C&O Canal in D.C., which she was a member of the Sierra Club, uh, who grew up biking uh, in the ample paths all around the D.C. area, and camping all up and down the East Coast uh, in literally every state before I was age 12. I had been to every state on the East Coast and camped in most of them because that was low-cost hoteling. So this 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 show in recent history came about because an opportunity came across my screen, a screen that I was desperate to uh, escape from in many ways. And I said to the production company as they were like, why why do we pick you to do this? You, you're not the obvious candidate. I'm like, exactly. I am not the obvious candidate, but I, I have the bona fides if you wanna dig into my files. You, you can, you, I can break out those those Boy Scout Uh, you know, credits and whatnot, those unlocks that I got back in the day. Um, And I still enjoy the outdoors, but this was a homecoming opportunity for me. And I was tired, I think, of seeing the conquest mode of outdoor media, which involved generally grizzly, generally white, generally bearded-esque dude with like a big stick uh, standing atop something, always on top of something, always dominating something um, to say like, I lay claim to this in the name of whatever. And, and the extreme sports view of the outdoors or just the, the animal slow motion view of the, uh, what about the people? And they were interested because this is for PBS and making a show about people in the outdoors uh, and not just about a fetish, fetishization of the outdoors, for its own sake. Uh, but the relationship between people and nature and between people and other people through nature, I signed up for that. Um, and I got more than I bargained for.
0: Now, I love that. And I think what I like most about the show is that it is people and place focused. And it's people yeah. in their place and their relationship with mm. that particular environment. And I'm amazed. I mean, you literally went from the LA River to the Boundary Waters of Minnesota. You know, and that's a great stretch. You know, you went back to your, yeah. your home area in Washington, D.C. on the tidewater, and I'm really excited, you know, about the prospects of where this show can ultimately go. First of all, I'm, I'm, I think I'm most curious about what is it that made you decide to pick the locations that you did? Why did you go to Los Angeles, Death Valley, Idaho, Minnesota. What what was the impetus for picking the locations that you went on this program?
1: Yeah. So it may surprise you to know uh, I was not solely in charge of this project. <laughs> I'm am a member of a team. I didn't conceive of the show, though I did highly influence the show. And, and so this I think of this as kind of three pieces coming together. TPT Twin Cities Public Television initiated the show. They had the the vision to pull this off part two pictures is the production company that actually made the show. They're the people that found me, they hired the sound folks, the camera, the producers, they found most of the people that you see in the show. Uh, I found some, I'm proud to say, and I insisted on some locations, which I'll get to, uh, but the, the totality that you see is, is a bit of me, a bit of part two, a bit of TPT and all of this country in its beautiful and, and hideous contradictions come, come together. Um, what was important to me was showing some non-obviousness. Uh, I, I will take credit for Minnesota. I will, I will say that because I have a family uh, travel history there through my wife's family to the Boundary Waters. I had direct experience with how magnificent that region is. And so we got Minnesota on the map and the team went nuts and they found way more than I ever knew Uh, about in that state, including this great photographer, Dudley Edmondson, uh, based in Duluth, his brother, who photographs birds. And he really opened my eyes to a a beautiful way of interpreting a relationship with the outdoors, uh, not just as a person, but specifically as a Black person. And I I found some extra extra power-ups through my time with Dudley I still call on.
0: Nice. Well, actually, Dudley and I have been friends for years.
1: Of course you have. Of course you have.
0: I also really appreciate the fact that you kind of tunneled down on Dudley's identity as a black man in the outdoors and being
1: one of relative few. Today, Dudley lives right by this reserve, so he has access to it whenever he feels he needs it. But sometimes, access can be a complicated thing. So I'm going to ask you a very direct question, Dudley. Yes, sir. Black people, where are they?
2: Yeah, they're not here. (laughs) Yeah, so... How did you
1: adjust to that when you came here? Yeah,
2: you know, for me, I've always been a person who... uh, My connection to nature is so strong that I... That's priority. I think that as people of color, we have been... I don't know, I'm going to use the word relegated to urban spaces, Mm. right? But I have found that in outdoor spaces, white people, for whatever reason, feel threatened. I know two African-American males this year who were fishing um, and were shot at several times in their boat. Someone shot at them as they were fishing multiple times.
1: So that's an extreme example.
2: It's an extreme example. I mean, myself in this community, I have not had those kinds of things happen. I have had them happen on camping trips uh, where I've had people calling me the N word. What I get in that green space Mm -hmm. is so helpful to me, I'm willing to take ownership for that space and I might also be willing to challenge people who challenge me because that space is so important to me, to my mental health.
0: Now, I'm kind of curious to know how much of that was important to you to be able to reflect the diversity of experience in the outdoors. Because it definitely comes through in the show. I'm very curious to know how deliberate that was from the outset. It was, it was
1: essential and deliberate. Our inclusion of multiple indigenous nations was essential and deliberate. You can't talk about national parks in the United States of America without talking about the nations that predate all of that nationalness and even the naming of these places. You can't go, they can't talk about climate change without talking about the people who've lived with nature in a much more sustainable way versus the kind of colonial European attitude uh, for for a very long time. So that was super, super important uh, to us. And, And so we found that through the Timbisha people in what is known as Death Valley through the Shoshone Bannock, the Salmon people, in what we call Idaho and to the Ojibwe Anishinaabe in what we call Minnesota. And they are all different, but they all have a common thread as we all do. And what was also kind of beautiful is, is finding threads amongst people that, that we weren't expecting. You know, There was a commonality between these indigenous folk, between these liberation seeking black folk, between white regenerative farmers Basically, learning ancient technologies and applying them to try to save us all, you know, as we attempt to burn ourselves off of our only home. And to like ranchers and crabmen, even the most conservative folks we had on the show echoed some similar language of respect for tradition, of power of land and environment to shape, you know, our cultures, our family, our sense of place and belonging and the need to maintain that. And so many of us are just trying to ensure that the next generations have what the previous ones had access to. And uh, that desire is very consistent, though sometimes they do come into conflict.
0: Well, it definitely comes out in the show. And, and I'm, I'm kind of curious to know, I don't know if you've had any audience feedback conversations. Because hmm. to me, it hits different. You know, I think that it hits different than all the other nature-focused shows that I've ever seen, including ones that I personally participated in. I think that the nature of this program
1: is... Ooh, I see what you did there. (laughs) Pun intended.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Is designed, ultimately, to decentralize, you know, or, you know, create... A, an environment, another pun intended, um, in, in which, you know, we can see multiple facets of a, a much bigger, broader conservation movement. Has that resonated with audiences that have maybe seen the the show so far? Because I mean, it hasn't aired yet. I'm grateful to have gotten advanced clips of it. So I know what, what the format is. But what do people who have seen it so far let you know about how this might hit different
1: for them? I've heard limited feedback. And it's all been positive, thankfully. My wife thinks it's amazing <laughs> and, and she's jealous that she didn't get to go on these trips with me. I think I just heard something today. Someone said it, it felt spiritual. They felt like they, that I had taken them to church through this show, that there was a level of poetry to the show and, and real beauty. They just commented on the cinematography of it, uh, the the way we shot it. I'm really grateful to our crew who worked on a PBS shoestring budget to pull off some some beauty. And also to myself for going through the when you go getting those shots sometimes takes, you know, carry that canoe for the fourth time, portage it again through the bog. Like I know what a bog is now, because I've been on it and in it and then under it, you know, because they had me walking back and forth through that so many times. That impression that that someone recently shared about the the preaching and the spirituality, that clicked with me. And it wasn't, it wasn't something I anticipated. I mean, I, I will acknowledge that I went into this with goals of let's get back outside for me, right? I've just been tied up in this tech thing and screens and social media and all. And I missed the little Boy Scout in me. You know, I miss the, the, the cyclist. And this was a good chance to, to try that on again. See those shoes. Still fit, and they do. Uh, and I wanted to explore diversity, and I wanted to learn. But I just, I was, it exceeded my expectations as a viewer. As I've looked back at, it, I'm like, oh, the vastness of the country was really impressive to me. the The diversity of it, and I, I'm trying not to mean that in a trite way. It's often, you know, we can say like America's a very diverse country. And it's like asking someone how they're how they're doing, but you're not really interested in the answer. Like we sometimes say these things without really meaning them or knowing the meaning of them. So I've said America's very diverse, and I've not really meant it. This show got me out of that distant pundity world where you're like analyzing a nation based on charts and mouthing off online and you get into the country. And so you're talking about the country with the country and that's a whole different dialogue. And then when you're able to, you know, I've done a lot of cable news stuff where they put people in little boxes on screen. So you got this Brady Bunch vibe. You're literally disconnecting people from their place. And it's, it's disembodying, it's dispiriting and it's decontextualizing. And there was a media event that I think is one of the greatest media events of my lifetime. I'm 44 years old. And it's the 2020 Democratic National Convention. And I say this because the way they had to produce it due to COVID, they couldn't bring everybody to a convention center and have them hold up their little flags. They filmed them in place. And you saw these delegates in Hawaii being Hawaiian you know, in the environment that makes them Hawaiian. You saw the Missourians doing the same thing in St. Louis. You saw the same thing for the Idahoans and the Californians. It was, I felt moved because I was like, oh, that's the country. And so making this show reminded me of a version of that. Not that we were producing like a, a partisan party conference, but that we were meeting people literally where they are and seeing in part how we become who we are Based on where we are. And you know, when it's like when you meet your friend's parents and you're like, I know how you got that way. When when you see the ranch in Idaho that Martin Black has been a part of for five generations, I know why he talks the way he talks. You know, and that and that's true for the Ojibwe, and that's true for black folks too. Like, I understand some of our complexity in terms of relationship with the outdoors, when I'm outdoors with Black people and I can acknowledge with them, yeah, we're kind of rare out here, isn't that sad? Yo, but we're out here, isn't that beautiful? Why is it so rare? Maybe it has to do with the fact that we were tortured for generations out in these fields and made to work out here. Would you wanna send yourself back to the scene of the crime? Maybe not. Maybe it's the fact that we got free, quote unquote, paying taxes into this system after paying the ultimate price already and can't use the parks and the pools that we're paying for because the racism persists. Maybe it's the fact that even today after Obama, when we're definitely for sure, for sure free now, we still can't go jogging or bird watching or any other activity that we're allegedly supposed to have a right to without somebody feeling threatened by our presence, even though history proves we're really not the threat here. We're really not the threat, but you go ahead and deal with your insecurity by taking it out on me again. So that's a tired ass story. And, and so when I come across folks who are impatient with black people, how come black people don't do more? It is how black people should be. Do- well, you should, be, you should, we should all be healed. Yes. That's what you're saying. What you're saying is you should have everything figured out and you should resolve all of your traumas instantly. That isn't inhumane expectation of humans. So how do we create the conditions for us to wrestle with all of that history and all of that trauma and experience all of that healing and all of that joy? And so in pieces, I got to play with some of that with people like Dudley, with people like Mossy Smith, this ultra marathoner who's a a part of Team Onyx, this black adventure racing crew with Color to Water. And there's so many more, there's Girl Trek, there's a lot of folks, we only made six episodes, but I'm really hopeful that we'll get some corporate sponsor <clears throat> to kick in and fund future seasons, because I think we're just just getting started.
0: I think that what is really exciting is that you are a black man in this space, yeah. just being who you are. And I think that speaking to your point, you're doing exactly what we should be doing, just being out there and having these experiences. Can you give me an idea as to how much of these experiences informed your thinking on the outdoors? Have you been transformed or has your thinking around these issues evolved in this experience of producing this show?
1: many, many ways. When I went surfing with Color the Water, we went to Topanga, uh, which is very near Los Angeles. And I hadn't been surfing in LA in a long time and they were telling stories of you know, bullying surfer behavior. Surfers can be very territorial over something you cannot own, which is a wave. You know, it's, it's this time delimited physical manifestation of the power of our earth, and you wanna lay claim to it. Like it's a fool's errand, but it is a colonial errand. It's the same idea of owning a tree you know, which felt absurd to the folks who were here initially. So it's consistent, at least. And so this this crew, you know, they roll as a crew. And when we were filming, they didn't, we had signed up to interview three people. There was Lizelle, Joy, and David. Those are like our primary subjects in the parlance of the TV production world. And they rolled with like 15 or 20. So they brought the 3 and, and we had them primarily on camera but they brought the whole crew young teenagers older folks all kinds of skill levels folks just out there paddling folks doing tricks everything in between it was it was um it was like the blackest thing i experienced on this show in the allegedly least black space and it was uh, it was wakanda on the waves it was it was a a family reunion and a block party in a space that I'm not used to seeing us. And it was this reclamation, you know, and and this assertion of presence and of existence that, you know, as someone who's used to being one of the few, the proud, the black one. it was like, Oh, it doesn't have to feel like that. Like this doesn't have to be a, a martyrdom kind of experience. This doesn't, I don't always have to be the outsider when I'm outside.
0: I love that you spent a bit of time in LA where you currently live, where I'm actually from.
1: Mm. Well, thank you for lending me your, your hometown.
0: Oh, uh, I, I'm glad you're enjoying it.
1: Cause you know, <laughs>
0: frankly, I mean, you actually introduced viewers, perhaps many of whom for the first time to the Baldwin Hills Scenic Overlook. Yeah, That's literally three miles from where I grew up. Wow! And as a kid, it was nothing like that. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a place that you didn't want to be because there really wasn't much there. There's been a a remarkable transformation in that particular place. The same is true of the Los Angeles River. The fact that you can actually catch fish in the Los Angeles River today, you know, when for years people just consider it an aqueduct or a drainage ditch. Yeah. There's this remarkable transformation of the natural environment in very urban spaces. Do you hope that this show and conversations around, I guess, reclamation of these areas you mentioned the beaches but ultimately i think this is true of most every place that you visit in this show is this an opportunity for us to reclaim the space to be used in ways that might not have been traditional but are infinitely more forward-thinking than they are now
1: yeah yes is the short answer of course i have a long answer but but the river's a the river's a funny tale Cause I used to clown the LA River. I still clown the LA River. I'm new here. I can't help it. I grew up around quote-unquote real rivers. But seeing the effort that members of, of various communities put forth to reclaim this river and try to restore it to its more natural state, to bring life back to it so it wasn't just an overflow or a sewage ditch or a place to film the Terminator series, that's great. Uh, people broke laws you know, to try to do it, it was, it was a movement. You know, people took risks on behalf of another member of the community, which is the river itself. That's, that's, that's the kind of coalition building we need on behalf of the whole planet and all of its people. And, uh, you know, I spend time out there fishing, not eating the fish, I wanna be clear to anyone listening, you shouldn't eat the fish out of the LA River, but there are fish in the LA River, which is a step in the right direction. And I kayaked out there with the team that, you know, they had to prove to a, a federal government agency that the river was navigable. And if it was navigable, then it truly was a river and needed certain protections. So they navigated it and they kayaked the, or, and canoed the whole river you know, over the course of many days, uh, again, at great risk to themselves and breaking some rules. That's, that's a powerful story. It's the same as every story of any people who've ever changed anything. They didn't ask permission. They did it. They didn't do it alone. They built communities and coalitions to do it. And LA is such an example of that. Even the greater region, you mentioned beaches and we don't have this in the show, but at the time we were filming this, Bruce Beach, you know, had a bit of reclamation itself in terms of this beach that was stolen from black people and, and to the exclusive benefit of white folks. And then you know, to a town, mostly white folks. So I, I want us to transform so many of our environments to ones that are um, more sustainable more habitable for all life I want places like the Baldwin Hills scenic overlook to be uh, made available to existing residents you know wherever they are as well I mean I grew up in a declining black neighborhood as many of us did and it's it's like as soon as things improve we got to move and there's this Interesting correlation between that. So, how do we also, as we're restoring and upgrading and all the trendy words, upgrading, how do we make sure that we're making the the new experience possible for the older residents?
0: That's really good to hear because m- my family still lives there. And when I visit, yeah. I always check in and on that view because For those people who may not be familiar with it, I mean, it's a fully unobstructed 360 degree view of Los Angeles. You can see the ocean to the west. You can see the mountains and downtown to the east. You can see the San Gabriels to the north. You can see all the way to Santa Barbara on a clear day. And I think that it's that reclamation of space that ultimately makes it so that everyone can be part of the natural environment. And Especially in the Minnesota episode, you had a chance to connect with um, some other friends of mine, Dave and Amy Freeman, and talking about the work that they're yeah. doing when it comes to the copper mines that are putting the Boundary Waters at risk. Uh, you also talked to Native people in your segment with harvesting of wild rice and the, the pipeline that runs the risk of contaminating that watershed and putting their entire way of life at risk. How much of, of that aspect in terms of environmental advocacy, you know, especially pushing back against industry and extraction, do you want to come out of this program? How much of this is a call to action?
1: I mean, look, if this was only my show, <laughs> we'd be doing that stuff all the time. Uh, But I think I'm also, you know, seeing the opportunity here and and doing stuff with with public media, try to reach as many folks as possible in as many ways as possible. So we have advocates and activists, you know, representing particular causes in the show. Um, And we have folks who are not so activists, you know, who just kind of enjoying their time outside. And that's part of the American outdoor experience as well. So it's accurately reflected in the show. I was honored to spend time with the Freemans. They're a couple, they're a crazy couple. Like my wife and I probably wouldn't do stuff like what they did canoeing across the country to to, to make a political point, but it seems to have made them stronger. And I think, you know, highlighting their story and that of of the Manuman harvesting Anishinaabe folk, you know, with the wild, wild rice, both threatened by the same pipeline activity and the leaks that will inevitably happen if we if there's one thing we know about pipes is that they leak that's like the guarantee that's how that's how pipes pipe that's in the it's in their nature so we 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 seem to be consistently willing to gamble in the wrong direction and to play kind of a short-term gain against a long-term guaranteed loss i knew the boundary waters were beautiful i had done one lake trip up there with my wife and her family And we snuck into Canada and swam in their water. And it was cleaner because it's Canadian water and it has healthcare that's free. But I didn't realize how influential that water was on the rest of the country, on the the rest of the continent and how rare it is. And sometimes when we talk about conserving and preserving nature, it's like this cute, distant luxury. You're like, I want to save this spotted weasel ferret because just look at it, it's so cute. And you have no idea what its place in the ecosystem is, but somebody fancy told you, you should care about it. And you got the time to learn about the spotted weasel ferret. So by God, you're gonna commit your million dollars to the spotted weasel ferret. And, and sometimes we can have that kind of attitude about land rights and preservation. But I think in the case of the boundary waters, it's like, it's like this filtration system, you know, for so many of us, the way that Amazon does for our air the boundary waters kind of does for our water, at least the way they explained it. And it's, it's stupid to mess with that.
0: I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. And, and the, I think the biggest question for me is what, ha- what happens next? <laughs> what, what's, yes. what is episode seven? What does season two America Outdoors look like?
1: That is unknown currently, but I can tell you what's going on. We are making a digital series as a compliment to the series that's going out on air. This will be on YouTube. I've already filmed uh, uh, an episode. I've got another one coming up two days from when you and I are chatting right now. And that's gonna roll out basically in parallel, a little staggered from the linear launch, but offset by a month or two uh, to keep people connected and just reach a different demographic. Some people quote unquote, don't watch TV, but they'll watch moving images on a giant 50 inch screen in their home. I don't know what you call that. I guess they call it YouTube. So we're making stuff for, for YouTube and, and TikTok and everywhere else. And then I definitely want a season two. Um, I'm not in a position to just snap my fingers and make that happen. So if you're down and you like this show, let the people know, you know tell, tell people about it. I mean, nothing breeds success more than success. And I think given the way public media is funded and often under threat, it is usually helpful to have some grant maker show up and just believe in it, some company, that is aligned with the preservation of our home planet in this case, uh, believe in it and help unlock more stories. There is so much we couldn't get to uh, because of limited time, uh, which came down to, to limited resources like money. So rub your fingers together, make it rain, healthy, healthy, not acid rain, but healthy non-extractive capital rain to, uh, to help fund more projects like this so we can put more people like Dudley and, and the Freemans, et cetera, uh, on air.
0: Well, I got to tell you, this has been a fabulous, fabulous conversation. Um, Best of luck with the program and, you know, whatever you're doing next, because I definitely want to follow along. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate this conversation. Thank you for taking the time to chat with me today.
1: I love this chat so much. I'm so glad we made this happen when we did. Please let me know when this is live. I'll promote it to the wazoo. Um, I don't even know what that means. I'm tired. This is my last thing of the day. I'm gonna go watch a, a silly movie, uh, and go to bed way too early. <laughs>
0: The PBS series America Outdoors is coming to your favorite public television station. Check your local listings for dates and times near you. Baratunde Thurston is the author of the book How to Be Black, and he's the host of the How to Citizen podcast. You can learn more about him and all of his amazing work at baratunde.com. For The Joy Trip Project, this is James Edward Mills. Our music comes courtesy of Artlist, featuring the talents of the Cliff. The Joy Trip Project is made possible thanks to the support of the Schleck Family Foundation and the National Geographic Society. If you like this episode, please drop me a note in the comments, or better still, write a review on one of the many streaming platforms, including iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. I'd love to hear from you. You can also reach me via email with your constructive questions, comments, and criticisms at info at For now, go be joyful, and until next time, take care.